Let's pray and now and ask God to now bless the preaching of his precious word. Let's pray. Almighty gracious Father, inasmuch as our whole salvation depends upon our true understanding of your holy word, grant to us this morning that our hearts, being freed from worldly affairs, may now hear and apprehend your holy word with all diligence and with all faith, that we may rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness. To your praise and honor and glory, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we continue this morning uh, with our theme of Reformation. And for the last two Sundays, if you haven't uh, been here, we've been exploring what we've called the five great solas of the Protestant Reformation. Now, most of you know that the word sola is the Latin word for only or alone. And these great anthems, these great slogans, they were lifted up during the 16th century by men like Martin Luther, John Calvin, Theodore Beza, Aldrich Zwingli, John Knox, Philip Melanchthon, and other reformers. They saw that over the years the, the gospel of Christ had been perverted by a corrupt church. It had been encrusted, if you will, with superstitions and, and tradition. And these great anthems galvanized God's people to throw off this yoke of slavery and to return to the freedom found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now these folks had, had read Paul's letter to the Christians in Galatia who were facing a, a similar situation. And they remembered very clearly Paul's admonition to these Christians. It's recorded in Galatians 5.1, a great verse. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And so these reformers, they, they coined these five great battle cries, which essentially summarized the gospel of Paul in the first century, summarized the gospel, the biblical gospel, the scriptural gospel. They spoke of sola scriptura, scripture alone, our only authority. They said the Bible has absolute authority in all matters of thought, theology, and conduct. Scripture alone rules in the church. You know, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago when I preached on it, but I said when Scripture defines a particular issue, such as the nature of God, the nature of man, how we relate to God, how we relate to each other, then it is Scripture which has the authority of defining that problem and addressing its solution. And not philosophy, not psychology or science or any other discipline. Then these men said, Solus Christus, Christ alone. Christ, our only mediator. There is no other way to God except through faith in the person and work of Christ. All roads do not lead to the top of the mountain. Only one does. And that road goes through Jesus Christ. You know, you would think that the medieval church would guard to the death Jesus as the only mediator between God and man. 
But we know humans sin. And it wasn't long before Jesus got lost in the shuffle. And a whole host of saviors came into the church. There were saints. There was Mary. There was the methodology of, of various sacraments. There was this issue of faith and works. And Jesus Christ as Savior was pushed aside. And I think to some extent it's the same today. Solus Christus is not preached much anymore. We get a lot of therapy from pulpits throughout this land. People talk a lot about felt needs and how to feel good, but we don't get much Christ alone. The Reformers also talked about sola gratia. Grace is the only method of salvation. And what they meant by that was that this gospel of salvation that comes to us through Jesus Christ flows solely from the grace and mercy of Almighty God. It has, it has absolutely no basis in who we are or what we do. There is nothing good in us which would attract us to God. When we fell in Adam, we fell all the way, not part way. We are enslaved to sin. And unless God intervenes with this marvelous grace, our case is hopeless. Now those are the three solas that we've explored the past two Sundays. This morning I want us to look at these last two solas of the Protestant Reformation. Sola fide, sola fide, faith alone, and soli deo gloria, to God alone be glory. First, sola fide. Faith is the only means of salvation. You know, the Reformers saw very clearly that it wasn't sufficient for them to say that we are saved by God's grace alone. In fact, if you go back and look, many medieval theologians were saying the same thing. They would have agreed, would have agreed with Luther and Calvin. But the Reformers went further. They said that we receive God's grace only through faith. That faith is the only instrument by which this grace can be appropriated. Now that's an important distinction. Because the medieval church didn't believe in sola fide. They believed that a person was justified through faith and works. Now we need to understand that the medieval church viewed God's grace sort of as a treasury, a repository, a bank, a reservoir from which a person could draw to make himself or herself righteous. You know, God's grace to them was sort of like, I think I mentioned last week, it was sort of like coffee or, or an energy drink. It sort of got you going in the morning, it gave you a jolt, and if you started to run down, then there was plenty more where that came from. And by going to confession, being absolved by a priest, te absolvo, and by, and by doing certain works of satisfaction, five Hail Marys, you could get a fresh infusion of God's grace to make you righteous again. You know, one of the wisest professors that I had in seminary was Dr. Roger Nicole. And Dr. Nicole, to describe this, he used this analogy of sort of pouring water into a faulty bathtub. And if the water leaked out, you simply filled it back up again. You see, that back then the church said that you had to be made righteous 
before God would justify you. And they used this metaphor of pouring in God's grace to make you acceptable to God so he could go ahead and save you. So he could go ahead and justify you. They said that a sinner is justified by faith, but not by faith alone. That if God's saving grace sort of leaks out of a person because of some sin, then he has to get it back by going to confession, by doing what they call works of penance. In fact, they called the sacrament of penance, penance was a sacrament, they called it the second plank of salvation. Meaning that penance or works of satisfaction were required for salvation. And the reformers rightly contended that that's the same as saying that a person is saved not by faith alone, but by faith plus works. And that caused them basically to come unhinged. You know, they opened their Bibles to Ephesians 2. They read verses 8 and 9 that said, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So then they, they, they read Romans 1.17 again, just to make sure that they understood what it said about the gospel. Romans 1.17 said, For in it, talking about the gospel, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Then they went back to the Old Testament. They read Habakkuk 2.4, which says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within them, but the righteous shall live by faith. And so they rightly concluded, they said, these people are wrong. They're preaching a false gospel. A person is justified through the instrument of faith alone. He's not justified through faith in some works of penance. That is not the biblical gospel. You know, I think it's interesting to note that the medieval church condemned this doctrine of justification by faith alone at the Council of Trent in 1543. And the Roman Catholic Church still condemns this doctrine of justification by faith alone today. So even today, major differences exist in views of what constitutes the biblical doctrine of justification. Is it by faith alone, or is it by faith and works? You know, in, in recent years, and I'm sure you've seen this, there's increasing sympathy for the view that these differences, although of importance during the time of the Reformation, are no longer significant. Justification by faith alone is being treated today as an item, as an item upon which Christians can agree to disagree agreeably. We're told that it's certainly not something which should cause Christians to break fellowship. It shouldn't divide Christians. We're told that we have bigger fish to fry. We have a lost and dying world which needs to be evangelized. We need to cooperate in that mission. Secularism, postmodernism, it's all around us. We're swimming in it. It's even seeping into the church. And we need to come together to fight this common enemy. 
We're told that Christians need to quit quibbling over minor points of doctrine. We need to quit arguing over semantics. You see, that is the argument for unity today. The argument for increased ecumenicalism. And I have to admit that I have some sympathy with all that. You know, I think today Christians are, are often too prickly. We often argue over minor points of doctrine. That's all true. But you see, here's the thing. Why would a difference in the doctrine of justification be significant in the 16th century, but not today in the first part of the 21st? You know, cultures do change from one age to the other. But dear ones, the gospel of God never changes. The gospel is bound neither by time nor by culture. It's the same regardless of what year it is or whatever the culture happens to be saying at, at any particular time. Now, I would be the first to admit that, to grant that the way of presenting the gospel may vary. But dear ones, the gospel is what it is. And it doesn't change over time. You know, this conflict over, over how sinners are justified by God was so important to the reformers in the 16th century that it caused the biggest rupture in church history. These men were willing to die for sola fide because they knew it was the very essence of the biblical gospel. But what about us? You know, I hate conflict. I don't like conflict. I doubt if any of you do either. We want people to like us. We want to be in groups. And I, and I do believe that Christians often do fall on their swords over trivial matters. We often make ourselves pests to other Christians. But dear ones, this is not one of those trivial matters. We're not talking here about some minor point of doctrine. We're not arguing here about semantics. We are talking here about the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I would just say, if you have to fall on your sword, this is the point at which you do it. This cannot be compromised just for the sake of peace and unity. You know, look, I want to have peace and unity with anyone who believes the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if anyone who claims to be a Christian is preaching or teaching another gospel from that which God has declared in Jesus Christ, then I don't want to make peace with him. I cannot be in unity with him because to make peace with him is to make war with Christ. And that I simply cannot do. As Luther said, God help me. Here I stand. John Calvin said, let it therefore remain settled, remain settled, that this proposition is exclusive, that we are justified in no other way than by faith, or which comes to the same thing, that we are justified by faith alone. Well, if scripture is our only authority, if Christ is our only mediator, 
If grace is our only method of salvation and faith is our only means of obtaining it, then what this leads us to is that our only ambition in life should be to glorify God. And that leads us to soli deo gloria, to God alone be glory. What a great ambition that is for all Christians. You know, God alone is worthy of glory. And I think we get so, uh, so often get so caught up in our own little worlds that we fail to see God's glory. So I want to just very quickly suggest a few areas where you can clearly see God in all his glory. And you know these. We can see God's glory in creation. You know, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 19.1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hand. I think his glory is seen very clearly in providence. In him we live and move and have our being. You know, things today might look like they're spinning out of control. But if God ever took his hand off this world for just a second, we can't even imagine what would happen. I think if you look, you can clearly see God's glory in the doctrine of election. For of him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. You know, this plan began with him. It didn't begin with you on the day you said yes to Jesus. It began with him and the day he said yes to you. And placed you in Christ before the foundation of the world. God's glory is seen in the incarnation. Where the fullness of deity is shrouded in humanity. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. I think we see it in Christ's active obedience and in his passive obedience. And dear ones, all that obedience is credited to us so that God sees us as pleasing and perfect before him. God's glory is seen in the application of redemption by the Holy Spirit and by our union with Christ. Here's how Calvin puts it. Calvin says, We see that our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it anywhere else. Do you seek salvation? It is of him. Are you looking for the gifts of the Spirit? They will be found in his anointing, not yours. Do you seek strength? It lies in his dominion. If purity, in his virgin conception. If redemption, in his passion. If acquittal, in his condemnation. If remission, in his cross. If satisfaction, in his sacrifice. If purification, in his blood. In newness of life, in his resurrection. In short... Calvin says, since this rich store of every kind of good abounds in him, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. Dear ones, this is the incredible glory of our wonderful God. It doesn't get any better than that. Well, it does when we get to heaven and we see him face to face. Yet I would say that much of the evangelical 
church today doesn't get it. God is not the motive. His glory is not the ambition of many Christians today. You know, you go into many churches today, and you'll find that worship services are often celebrations of ourselves more than they are of God. Often they're more entertainment for the creature rather than worship of the Creator. You know, J.B. Phillips has well captured, I think, the modern cinema toward God in the title of his popular book, some years old now, Your God is Too Small. You know, never before have Christians been so obsessed with themselves. Never before have people entertained such grandiose notions about humans and such puny views of God. Never before has God been so forgotten and lowered in our expectation, in our estimation. Self-esteem, self-image, self-confidence, self-this and self-that have replaced the talk of God and his majesty and his awesome attributes. Sometimes I could throw up. You know, some years ago, it has been some years ago, uh, when I was a pastor here, someone asked me if our worship services were seeker-sensitive. When I asked him, I said, you know, what does that mean? He said, well, if an unbeliever sort of wanders in through the door, would he understand what we're talking about? And would he be, would he be comfortable in our midst? Well, I, I don't recall exactly what I said, but I, I think I told him at the time that we, we certainly needed to make the gospel clear. We needed to make it relevant. We certainly need to be friendly, cordial to all newcomers. But that I did not believe that the purpose of a church was to structure a worship service for so-called seekers. Yet, many churches do that. Many churches do not talk about the great doctrines of God in Scripture. They say that they're too complicated for unbelievers to understand. They don't emphasize the offense of the cross and the wrath of God towards sinners. No, you can't do that. That might scare people off. The main purpose of any church is to come together on Sunday mornings and other times to glorify God and to let him speak to us in word and sacrament, in song and in prayer. See, that's why Desert Springs Presbyterian Church was established. We come here on Sundays, not primarily for us. We're not here primarily for so-called seekers. We come here to glorify God. And I would suggest that if an unbeliever shows up for a worship service, he or she may not understand everything they hear. But hopefully they'll notice something different is going on here. And they'll want to have what you have. And God will be glorified. All the more. You know, I've said before that there are a lot of things about Christianity which unbelievers may not be attracted to. But God's grace displayed in his people who glorify and worship him is not one of them. That is attractive. That is compelling. And I think generally that's what happened in the Protestant Reformation. Now that was one of the greatest errors 
of Western history. It touched every aspect of life. It touched knowledge, the arts, architecture, the sciences, politics. Soli Deo Gloria was how Johann Sebastian Bach signed all of his compositions. It's interesting, he carved Soli Deo Gloria into the organ at Leipzig. You know, you go to the old town of Heidelberg, Germany today, and you look above the old hotel and the tavern, and you'll find etched above the door the words Soli Deo Gloria. You know, can you even imagine every aspect of life revolving around the glory of God? Can you imagine how our culture would be transformed? The arts, certainly politics, sports, music, the church. See, that's the way it was during the Reformation. People no longer hid their activities from God. Now they went about and were able to view things as if God were present, seeing his children enjoy his presence regardless of where they were or what they were doing. You know, there was a man by the name of Eugene Rice uh, who was a professor at Columbia University. And he wistfully looks back at those remarkable times. And he says this, and I quote, he said, All the more the Reformation's views of God and humanity measured the gulf between the secular imagination of the 21st century and the 16th century intoxication with the majesty of God. We can, he says, exercise only historical sympathy to try to understand how it was that the most brilliant intelligences of an entire epoch found a total supreme liberty to abandon human weakness to the omnipotence of God. Now such is the contrast between today and the 16th century. In those days, God was part of all life. God was bigger than life. Today, our God is too small. May God help us. So I want to ask you this morning, do you have a great vision of God and his work on your behalf? Are you intoxicated with God? You know, I hope that you do have that vision because it is precisely that vision which drives us to service. It is that vision which drives us to dream great dreams for his glory. There's a very instructive passage in the book of Exodus, and I'll close with this. You remember the story? Moses had gone up in, uh, on the mountain to receive uh, uh, the law from God. While he was up there, God also gave Moses, he told him uh, detailed instructions about constructing the tabernacle, what the priest's garments were to look like, how the priests were to be consecrated. But do you remember what was going on down in the valley while Moses was up on the mountain with God? I see your heads are shaking. Well, it wasn't good. It wasn't pretty. Now, the people got tired of waiting for Moses. They got bored. You remember what they did? They started worshiping a golden calf. And the narrative says that God wanted to kill them. But Moses interceded for them. It says that God relented. 
But when Moses came down off the mountain, he saw the calf, he saw the celebration going on, basically he lost it. And in anger, he threw down the tablets on which God had written the law, and they were smashed into a thousand pieces. Later, God invited Moses back up to Mount Sinai, where he replaced those two tablets. And the text says that Moses made haste to bow low and worship God. Then we come to this great, great verse, Exodus 34, verse 9. And Moses says this to God. He says, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my God, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. If I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my... uh, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. What a great life verse that is for a church. You see, this is what we need. If anything is ever going to happen in a church, that church needs the presence of the Lord. God needs to go among us. These Israelites were obstinate. They were disobedient. They were stiff necks. Can I say this morning that so are we? Can I say that? I think I can. So my fervent prayer for you dear ones this morning is that the Lord will continue to go among you and he will pardon your sin and my sin and he will take us as his inheritance. What a glorious thought. And I would pray that we would would be glory sensitive. Not just here on Sunday morning, but at work, at play, with family and friends. If churches would do that in all of life, it would revolutionize our lives and would literally change the world in which we live. May God make it so in this church, even today. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be glory. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we have absolutely nothing of which to boast. We have nothing in which to glory except you and the cross of our redemption. Father, we pray that we may be glorified together with your Son on the last day, not that we might be exalted, but that in the completion of your work of redemption, that very act will resonate and echo through eternity as an act of glorifying you. In our souls and in our hearts and in our flesh, O God, there is no glory save that which we have tasted from your presence in our midst. Give us, we pray, a lasting vision of your glory, and may we enjoy you forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen.